Hello, and welcome to the IQT podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special B-Next series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. I'm Dylan George, a VP at BeNext, which is a biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. And here with me today is Caitlin Rivers, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Hi, Caitlin. How are you? I'm all right, Dylan. Hang in there. (laughs) How are you? <laughs> as, as best as you can in these times, exactly. Yeah. To, to our listeners, it'll be no surprise to anyone that COVID-19 has radically changed our perception of what it means to be prepared for and respond to pandemics. COVID-19 continues to spread in our communities, among our friends and our families. It's threatening our hospitals and healthcare workers. Governors and mayors are considering a second shutdown in some places. Parents are wondering if their kids will be safe at school and the pandemic continues to cause significant economic disruption. Understanding the risks of the pandemic and how to mitigate them is critical. Outbreak analytics are tools to help in that process. So today, we're going to dig into this topic and other issues. So to start with, Caitlin, you wrote a great report on outbreak science recently and posted it on the Johns Hopkins Center of Health Security's website. The report was entitled, modernizing and expanding outbreak science to support better decision-making during public health crisis. seems like a pretty, you know, pertinent title and a very germane topic for, for our times. So in this podcast, we'll put that link, we'll put that link into our podcast notes for those who would like to review it. So Caitlin, how would you describe outbreak science? I think of it really as using infectious disease modeling and analytics to support public health decision-making. So when we identify an outbreak, there's a few critical steps that have to happen in order for the public health response to really kick into gear. The first is knowing that something is happening. And sometimes that's harder to make sense of than you might expect, because if it's something we've never seen before, or if there is a syndrome or a series of symptoms that are um, hard to understand if it's something that's important or not important, knowing when to act is actually a really important and difficult question. Another important question is characterizing what happens. How serious is it? Is this something we need to be gravely concerned about? Or is this something we can wait and see how it unfolds? And making that decision and doing that assessment early in an outbreak and getting it right is really important to making sure what happens next uh, is the best response that it can be. And then we can, thinking ahead a little bit, it becomes about anticipating what will happen in the near future. Is this an outbreak that will be self-limited? Or is this an outbreak that we can expect to spread aggressively, which would mean we need to act more aggressively? Anticipating what happens next is important for decision makers to plan a response. And finally, considering options for how to fight the outbreak. 
there are always trade-offs when we are addressing or thinking through our options for fighting an outbreak. And we wanna make sure that we pick the response that is best suited to the challenges that we face. And so infectious disease modeling or outbreak science can help us to understand what options might be best suited for the different tasks or challenges at hand. And Dylan, I know you've thought about this a lot. The one thing that I was going to add into there too is while we've described them as discrete steps, I mean, and, and I love the way that you've done this, it's like, you know, they're, they're much more iterative and they go back and forth. I mean, what we're experiencing right now is like, is something new happening in the outbreak as we see new cases rise? Is that something that we should be concerned about? And how do we characterize that? So it's not once you've done one step, you move on to the next in a linear fashion. It's definitely iterative and, and uh, dynamic going back and forth. So just to just to make that point as well. But sorry, I cut you off there. <laughs> I was going to say one example that we, we hear about a lot, especially early in an outbreak, is the R-naught or the reproduction number. And I know you've thought about this a lot. Can you... Speak a little bit about the reproduction number and why it's so important early in an outbreak. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's there's two kind of big concepts to think about when we're thinking about um, understanding uh, infectious diseases. I mean, it's this idea of severity and spread and to, to know if something is really serious. And so one metric that people use, and this is pretty well well documented in the in the general public right now, um, and it's, it's surprising to me as well when my sister, who lives in Florida, and uh, um, was was talking to me about R naught and explaining some of the details of R naught. You know, she's not an epidemiologist by training, but it's a it just a, as an evidence of how pervasive this concept is in the public uh, right now. But you know, R naught is the basic reproduction number of of an outbreak, and it's the and, and as many people know, it's the average number of cases you would expect from one case in an immunologically naive population. And the, there's the, the the similar concept of RT or RE, the effective reproductive number is like, is in a population where you have uh, some people that have been exposed. And so the, the, but the basic idea here is the average number of cases you would expect from one case in, in particular population. This number is really helpful in understanding how quickly a pathogen is spreading in a population. It's very context specific though too. And you know, modeling has been critical in helping us to characterize the concept and then actually quantify it to think about how we can actually know if something's serious or not. I mean, another another really good indicator is, you know, either the case fatality rate or the infection fatality rate, uh, you know, which is the proportion of deaths for all infected individuals. And the, and the calc, I mean, trying to understand that tells you a degree of how quote unquote severe this is or how many people are actually being impacted in a very negative way through morbidity or mortality. I mean, calculating both of these numbers can be challenging, but are very helpful as we move things, things forward. And, and using these two metrics together gives you a sense of how to compare this outbreak to other outbreaks. For example, the death rate, is the death rate more similar to Ebola or to influenza? Is it spreading as fast as measles or as slowly as TB? It gives you a sense of where in the space of all the pathogens that are that are that have been uh, moving in different populations. It gives you a sense of how um, to characterize this uh, going forward. So modeling has been critical in helping uh, move these things forward. So outbreak science, you know, broadly speaking, is, uh, is incorporates this idea of infectious disease forecasting. Like you had mentioned, Caitlin, there's this idea of anticipating what will happen in the future. But some people have been talking about infectious disease forecasting as well. How would you describe that particular component of outbreak science? So I think infectious disease forecasting is one of the most evocative parts of modeling, by which I mean we understand forecasts and how they uh, relate to our lives 
in weather, for example, and we can understand intuitively how useful it would be to understand how many cases of a, an outbreak we could expect in the coming weeks. And so I think it's a really important and useful concept within the umbrella of infectious disease modeling. Now, when we talk about pandemic forecasting, we're mostly talking about projecting the trajectory of an ongoing outbreak. How many cases can we expect in their near term future? But there's also attempts to anticipate when and where an outbreak may emerge. We know that there are hotspot regions of the world or maybe certain conditions and environments that are conducive to spillover events. But it would be really useful if we could better understand when and where those emergence events might happen. We're not going to delve into that area so much. That's a topic for another day. But just to put a pin in it, that that's kind of another um, place where the field may be evolving. So in the world of infectious disease forecasting, it's a relatively new area. And so we're still really developing this capability. But we can look to weather forecasting, again, as an analogy of how forecasting skill can advance through time. Forecasting weather used to be kind of a chancy endeavor. We weren't very good at it. But over time, with advancements and investments in data collection systems, for example, satellites, models, which was um, a research and development kind of initiative, expertise with people, technology, computational power, all of these came together to push the field forward and really make weather forecasting what it is today. And I think that what Dylan and I are interested in is setting up something similar for infectious disease forecasting. Yeah, no, I, I like to refer to this as, you know, it's like 50 years ago, we were rubbish at weather forecasting, but today we're pretty good at it. And um, people use it on a daily basis to change their behavior when thinking about what they're going to need to, to do when they're going out into the elements. If we had a similar sort of capacity to do that, but for infectious diseases, so that people could understand their risk and then mitigate their risk by changing their behaviors in some way, you know, that would be a great benefit and a great capability for people to use to, to protect themselves and their families. And so that's why, you know, Caitlin and I have been really excited about this idea and trying to push it forward in, in some capacity. And I think we're starting to see some of this already, like models are already being used in public health practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so follow up on that too. It's like, uh, Caitlin, what are some other, other, other specific examples of how it's been used either in previous outbreaks or, or during COVID-19? Well, one scenario that I was at least tangentially involved in was during Ebola in 2014. And Ebola... Uh, was uh, it was a disease that we knew some things about, but it was in a new setting and it was on a scale that we had never seen before. And modeling played a really important role, I think, in helping to guide the response in that example. Uh, for example, there were many forecasts that came out early in the outbreak that really showed how bad the outbreak there could get if there wasn't interventions put in place to turn the corner. And I think having that understanding of how things could unfold if we didn't work really hard to change the circumstances was really galvanizing for the international community. And so I think that Absolutely. was a really important use of modeling. And one other example that springs to mind, and actually you would be better to talk about this, is the use of uh, modeling to plan clinical trials. Yeah, no, it was um, there was a small group of people when I was I was actually at the at working at um, the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response and Health and Human Services, and at BARDA or the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority at the time during 2015. This is this is actually when Caitlin and I first met was uh, working on Ebola, which is uh, um, friendship born in outbreak. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, there was a small team of analytical folks that were working there at HHS and we were trying to actually develop how to meaningfully forecast Ebola for a couple use cases that, that the ASPR was interested in understanding and also the secretary of HHS. And one of those was how do we, how do, we do clinical trials for Ebola, the Ebola vaccine? And one of the challenges that we had was the number of cases were declining, or at least we didn't know how fast the number of cases were going to be declining uh, because of all the great work that the people of West Africa were putting into. It's like social distancing, changing their behaviors associated with burial practices, and then also the the capacity for Ebola treatment units and, and diagnostics that were put out uh, to fight Ebola. And we just didn't have a good sense of how quickly that incidence was dropping. The importance of understanding that was you need to have comparators for clinical trials to know if the, the clinical trial for the vaccine is actually, uh, if the vaccine is actually effective or not. And so because we were able to, um, uh, the team at, at Asper was able to put together some forecasts that actually indicated that it was dropping faster than we thought it was, which was a, a great result. It was unfortunately put, made the, the clinical trials more difficult. And so they had to very quickly adjust the clinical trial designs and move things forward in a different way and in a more expedited way. And so they used more adaptive designs than they were thinking about. Uh, so it was a really great, from my perspective, it was a really great use of forecasting because it helped to frame uh, very specific decisions as well for, for an outbreak. You know, the the other thing, you know, that, Caitlin, the other thing I was really struck with, though, too, is there's lots of discussions. And I know that you've been thinking very deeply about um, the challenges of reopening schools. And again, I've been talking to uh, friends and family about reopening schools and what would what are the risks associated with kids and um, how they can and what parents should do to think about those those risks. It, it definitely strikes me as a use case right now because there's so many different settings across the United States in particular and globally as well, where the risk factors are slightly differently different. And so we need to think about those risks and people have to change their behaviors or something. It seems to me that this is a really interesting application or could be a very interesting application for forecasting capabilities as well. What do you think about that? I think that's right. I think reopening schools is such a difficult question in part because we don't have a really good understanding of what the epidemiology of children looks like. And so modeling can be helpful to explore those scenarios and say, okay, we don't know the ground truth yet but we can explore what happens if this is the answer, then what does the picture look like? What happens if this, if it's much worse than we're anticipating? What happens if it's much better? How does that change the overall picture? And I think that it's really useful for exploring different policy options and building a better intuition for how things might unfold. I think it's also, when we're thinking about schools, we think a lot about individual children appropriately, individual schools, but there's also really important questions about what reopening schools might do to community level transmission that goes beyond just the people affiliated with the schools. And I think that's a really difficult concept to wrap your head around and modeling can really help to build, again, that intuition and that larger understanding of, of, of what the different possible scenarios might be. Yeah, I think the other aspect of that too is, right. I mean, we're confronted with that right now where we're thinking about the change in dynamics in the outbreak where um, previously we were seeing, you know, high amounts of deaths in, in um, older individuals and clearly that's the, the high risk group. But now in this, in this uptick of cases, it seems that the 15-year-olds to 29-year-olds are the, uh, a really big center of gravity in terms of number of cases. That exact, what, what made me think about it, it was your comment of it's like, how does transmission in the schools impact the broader community? And do, do we see secondary infections from, from that? 
And that's the it's the it's the exact same question that people are trying to grapple with right now is like how much does transmission among the 15 to 29 year olds really impact hospitalization and deaths to other age groups um, in, or throughout the population? And so it's not school specific, but it's broadly interesting and useful for trying to grapple with a range of different problems and understanding what are the dynamics and how do you forecast that going forward would be another specific use case of how this could be very helpful. I think what was something you said just now is really important, and that's that right now we're seeing that there's a large, larger burden of infections in young adults than we saw earlier in the outbreak. But we think, we know that that will change because we're all connected to people who are more vulnerable. And I think, again, modeling can help us to understand how that might change over time and what the effects might be. And I think I think that helps us get beyond the current observations to think about how things might change over time. Yeah. And, and you know, the other aspect of this, too, that, you know, it's uh, that we've talked about multiple times and and, and is, is this idea of, uh, you know, what we do today will will be will show up in the data two to three weeks from now. Uh, what we've done um, two to three weeks ago is showing up now. And so we need to have better analytical capabilities to actually have us understand what's going on now because there's that disconnect in time because of the biology of the pathogen and, and, and how it works in infecting us and then transmitting through the community. That delay in data makes it really hard for doing decision making. And that's one of the reasons why trying to have capabilities where we can project into the future and try to think about, well, what are we seeing right now? What do we anticipate we'll see over the next couple of weeks? And, and what are the particular mitigations that we needed to put into place if what we're seeing over the next couple of weeks is not what we want to see happen? And so it's a, but yeah, that time lag is just really hard for, I think, for decision makers to wrap their brains around. And un- understandably, it's a, it's, you want to have cause and effect, but the delay really makes it challenging. You said the word data, though, and my ears pricked up because I think when we talk about these issues, all roads lead back to data. It seems like such an important underpinning of all of the capabilities that we're talking about, but we don't always have the data that we need. How are you thinking about that? You know, we we had this um, really great discussion with a a great colleague of ours, Ronnie Rosenfeld. He's a he's a professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, University, and you know, he I think said it really well. I mean, it's, it's something that we've all grappled with, and we all recognize is that by far the biggest obstacle in all of this is data. You know, health data are fragmented across the United States healthcare system. They're in silos. Uh, we can't talk very well with one another. We, the unfortunate thing is that we've seen this challenge in many outbreaks. Back in 2014 and 2015, when we were helping with the Ebola response, we saw that data being collected by the Ebola treatment units was distinct from the data that was being uh, developed by the, the diagnostic labs, which was distinct from the contact tracing teams. And trying to disambiguate or bring those data sets together was really challenging. It would cause cause lots of problems. And, you know, we could we could stand aside and say, you know, wag our finger at another country and say, it's like, you don't have very good data systems. You need to do better. You need to do better. But now we're experiencing COVID-19 and we see the exact same problems in the United States, but at scale. Diagnostic labs handing off to in clinical settings is still not worked out very well. Handing it off to the public health capacity or the public health um, agencies to enable con- uh, case investigation and contact tracing, really clunky, not very good. There was just a report in New York Times yesterday where we were seeing in Houston a much overworked fax machine and paper strewn across the floor. I hate to hear it. Very disheartening to, to be fighting COVID-19 with fax machines and spreadsheets in today's where data is the new oil. It's, we're not, we're not moving at speed. 
I think that's right. And the public health community has been talking about the ways that our data systems aren't up to the task for years. And they've been kind of sounding the alarm. And I think it's COVID-19 really now that has laid bare for the, the broader community how insufficient our current infrastructure is and how important it is for our national health security really in order to bring those systems into the future. And I think it's important for public health practice, but it's also absolutely critical for the capabilities that we're describing. If we want to be able to make good models and produce good forecasts, we need to have good data. And so there's just so many good reasons why this needs to be a priority for us. Yeah, absolutely. Completely, completely agree. I mean, that's that's why, you know, pushing forward uh, these kinds of capabilities, data is central to all of it, you know, and uh, it was interesting as well. You know, we had a colleague that works in public health and has been a long time advocate in public health. Um, uh, we did a webinar recently uh, talking about, you know, some of these issues of, of disease forecasting and whatnot. And he came up with this really uh, interesting question about what is the satellite data that would be needed for disease forecasting. And the, the interesting thing about that particular question is that he was essentially alluding to weather forecasting made a significant jump in capacity be, when they actually had satellite data because they could they had more data to actually do the modeling and it could be applied in a much more broad uh, setting. And so you saw this significant jump in forecasting skills and capabilities going forward. We need to think about data more deeply and how to move these things forward because we do not have really good situational awareness. The one, the one caveat I have with that though too is that data in and of itself will not provide answers. We need to think about what is the evidence base that we need for decision-making and work our way backwards. What is the evidence to discriminate between a couple different um, actions? What would be the information that we need to apply to that? And what would be the analytics that would give us that information? Then what are the data that would be needed for those analytics? And then how would we collect those data moving forward? That the whole information supply chain is really needs to be thought through, not only from capabilities, personnel, and technology, but also resources. And data are central to the whole process. I think what you're describing is so important, but it also calls to mind that right now, the people who are thinking about those problems really think about the entire spectrum, but the field is really advancing and growing to the point that I think we can have subspecialists. And I think that's one of the things yeah, that we're working yeah, towards. Great point. The people who will answer the question of what data would push us forward is probably academics, but the kinds of people who would really be at the table with decision makers and interpreting models and helping them to turn those models into public health practice might be a different specialty or a different skill set. And so I think yeah. there's, it's a growing field and there's so much room for people to really think through these questions deeply. Yeah, and, and what this, this leads me to this other question too, too. It's like, I mean, you've spoken very eloquently about this idea of the disconnect between modelers and public health decision makers and, and you know, in your reports and other venues. Uh, can, can you explain what you mean by that? Right now, most, uh, most infectious disease modelers work in academia and they have in their research programs, academic modeling questions. When there is a public health emergency like Ebola, like Zika, like COVID-19, they have been gracious enough to really drop their normal work and move to respond and to answer questions of critical public health importance. But the problem is that they're not really at the table with public health decision makers. And it's not because they don't want to be. It's just because it's, it's really hard to set up these relationships in a crisis. And so how it works too often right now is that academic modelers do their best work and then they don't really have much choice but to sort of throw those results over the wall and hope that the decision makers have find somewhere in there the answers that they need in order to do their best work. And so I think what I would like to see change is um, a more ongoing and close relationship between 
the people producing the models and the people trying to answer the questions and the, the end users, the people who are turn that into public health practice. And I think that by facilitating that relationship and making sure that it's really central to the way that we organize ourselves, we'll do a really great things for helping to push the field forward. Yeah, and you know, it's been really exciting to see how many people have been jumping in to help out with COVID-19 and they're realizing how drastic the situation is. You know, we have academics jumping in, we have private sector people, we have uh, journalists jumping in to help out with getting better data and to provide analytics that could be helpful. But this disconnect between what is really needed, what time frames decisions have to be made and how that can be applied more effectively. You know, there's a lot of effort going on, but it's missing, you know, it's not being connected very well. And and the other aspect of this though too is that surging academia and private sector to help in this ad hoc way. It's like when I was again, when I was in in government back in uh, uh, 2015, and we really tried to galvanize the academic community to help out, and it was it was very humbling to see how many people were willing to come and try to help. And I think that's one of the straight strengths of the innovativeness and the entrepreneurial spirit to bring that 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 effort forward. But unfortunately, then and even now, it's much more ad hoc and much more informal than is probably most people realize. And it's not an enduring capability, and it's uh, that's that's an aspect that I think that uh, uh, is worthy of of highlighting as well. And you have worked in the few parts of government that do this work of um, creating models and helping them to turn in uh, into products that are useful for decision makers. So I think one of the questions that I hear a lot is, why don't we just plus up those capabilities, and why don't we just send a little bit more money or a lot more money? to the shops that are already in this business. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I think I think that is a um, incremental solution to the problem. And I think that there's definitely, we need to have uh, addressed the disconnect between modelers and public health decision makers that you've already highlighted. And that would be a way to do it. But the problem has been in the past that um, to try to bring in data scientists and data technology into the federal government broadly is a well-known problem and it's no different from public health. In fact, it's probably even more acute for public health agencies and definitely public health agencies within the federal government. It's very hard to move data and data technologies into those spaces. And it's very hard to keep data scientists on staff um, because you're competing with a a large array of other uh, private sector uh, entities that can pay a lot more and have much more interesting um, technology and much more interesting problems on some levels. And so while I do think that uh, those are worthy uh, proposals to consider, it will definitely be incremental. We need to think much more transformative in how we're moving things forward. I mean, this is what we did with, again, going back to weather forecasting, this is what we did with weather forecasting as well. We had to think about what are the component parts that allowed that to happen and think about how to move those uh, forward in a much more concerted and transformative way. And, and one of the major components that we've oh, that we've talked about in a couple different settings, though, too, is there's definitely a need for sustained funding, uh, both for the science and the technology. And that's that's something that definitely we need to think about. And that's, I think, uh, probably a topic for another day because we should chat about that a little bit more. But there are some key kinds of areas, you know, that um, have pushed forward the foundational science in this area. But we need to have consistent efforts going forward as well. I think that's right. It's really hard to develop really innovative new solutions if you're always having to 
look around the corner for the next funding surge. Uh, it's really hard yeah, to make absolutely. those sustained investments. And so I think that's so important. Yeah, so, so we've talked about a handful of gaps in terms of developing this idea of outbreak analytics or outbreak science. I mean, we talked about the, the central need for data. We've talked about the disconnect between modelers. We've talked about limited capacity within the federal government. Uh, we've talked about the, the challenges of surging academia and private sector in an ad hoc and formal way. And just briefly, we've talked about the need for sustained funding. Uh, but all of those lead us to this obvious question of how should we address these gaps? Uh, you know, you've you've spent some time thinking about this. It's like what what kinds of things should we be thinking about? I mean, we've we've obviously we've talked a little bit about this already, but uh, let's talk a little bit more explicitly and, and specifically about it. There are a number of data data modernization efforts actually already in the works that I think would be really helpful for bridging the gap on some of these issues. And there there's one effort in particular that comes to mind called Data is Elemental. And this is an initiative that is put forward by the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists, um, Association of Public Health Labs, National Association of County and City Health Officials, and others. Uh, a lot of acronyms there that I, I think I made it all the way through. <laughs> uh, but, but as we spoke about earlier, these issues in, in the way that our data infrastructure is not serving its purpose and public health have long been a priority for professionals in the field. And so they have been talking about this and putting forward these solutions for years now. And I think now is the time to really push those forward and make sure that we don't get caught in this position again. And so that's one, I think, important idea. Um, but better data systems are necessary, but not sufficient. Without data, you can't do analytics full stop. And without analytics, you won't be able to really come up with the critical information that we need to guide outbreaks. So I think supporting more science efforts to build the next generation of people who will do those analyses and build those models is another important pillar that we need to be tackling. And I know that you have spoken a lot and written a lot about better data technologies, and I see such an important role for that as well. Yeah, no. And in fact, we wrote a paper on this in Nature Communications, if anyone's interested. But it's, uh, um, you know, it's like thinking about technologies at all stages of collecting, cleaning, aggregating, analyzing, visualizing. There's there's a suite of technologies that need to be put, brought to bear um, more effectively. And uh, that was the the, the impetus of, of that particular paper going forward. Yeah. And, and as we mentioned, though, too, it's like, you know, all of these recommendations are necessary, but we really um, need to think transformatively about capabilities, not just in an incremental way. And that's one of the reasons why you and I have been advocates for this um, idea of a center for epidemic forecasting and analytics. And that is an initiative that I think that we need to push forward as well. And that would be a way to address some of these gaps. Um, this is a topic that we'll be discussing in more detail in a future podcast for those that are interested. And so uh, while we think that this is a critical component, we'll talk about it in more depth because it's deserving of, of, of more discussion. I think one of the common questions when we've been talking about this idea in the past is that, isn't this the job of the CDC, the WHO, and public health broadly? Um, and what would we, what are we arguing for that is uh, different from what they have been trying to provide in their governmental roles in, in other capacities? Those are key stakeholders and making sure that this is an additive function that helps to support their work and the work of state and local public health officials is absolutely a top priority. But we've seen that the skill set that we're talking about of data science and infectious disease epidemiology and infectious disease modeling are not skill sets that 
have really found a home in a big way in, in the existing public health agencies. And it hasn't been as much of a focus of those agencies. And so we are talking about really centralizing and improving the way that we structure kind of those skill sets uh, and the interface with public health practice. Yeah, no, Anne Shuket, who's the number two at the CDC, is in a recent report, Ram, uh, had mentioned that, you know, the CDC is like a Model T moving down the super information highway. And and the, the reason that she used that analogy was this idea that, you know, they don't have the the data scientists, the data um, technologies, the, um, the capacity in public health to move and use data in the way that they want to. And so it's it's a, a self-admission that they need to do better and they need to figure this out. And and so this we see this as a complementarity to help them do that and move that forward is to try to figure out how to bring those skill sets, those quantitative analytics and those technologists uh, to help in this process. Super. Well, you know, back in 2015, uh, um, there was a really lovely report that was written about advancing efforts towards uh, doing epidemic predictions. And there was a, a report that both Caitlin and I were involved with called Towards Epidemic Prediction, uh, Federal Efforts and Opportunities and Outbreak Modeling, that uh, we'll put a link to that in the notes. It, it, it talks a lot about some of the challenges that we've just discussed right now. And then also, you know, Caitlin offered uh, or authored this uh, wonderful report that we mentioned uh, previously. Uh, it's entitled Modernizing and Expanding Outbreak Science to Support Better Decision-Making During Public Health Crises. And you can get that on the Johns Hopkins uh, Center of Health Security website, or we'll put a link to it uh, down below, for especially for those that are interested. We've said a lot. We've given you a lot of information there. Uh, we'll stop right there. But as you can tell, we're, we're very excited about outbreak science, and we definitely see it as a necessary tool for better, faster responses. And with that, we will sign off. Thanks, Caitlin. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. And yeah, and thanks for listening, everybody. Be safe, be well, and be healthy. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on BeNext, visit www.benext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.